All right, well, we are continuing our series in Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. It's on page 10 in the Pew Bibles. And uh, if you do not own a Bible, these mustard-colored Bibles belong to us, and you can keep those. So if there's not one in front of you, uh, there are actually some in the drawer. If you need a Bible, let us know. Um, And the brown ones belong to Portico, who meets here in the morning. So don't run off with those if you can help it. So Genesis chapter 14. Well, what would you say if you got to meet one of your heroes face to face? What kind of questions would you ask them? Maybe a hero or someone that you admire or look up to. I know I just heard Josh just got to meet an author today, so that's really funny timing. Uh, got to meet an author whose book he has read and, and really admires. Or just you know someone important that would... What would you be thinking about? What questions would you be wanting to ask them? And would you be nervous? Would you be like, I don't know what I'm going to say? Or how do I, you know, I don't want to like be like, oh, you're so awesome. I don't want to be gushing, but I, and I want to ask good questions. Well, some of us have had this experience or this privilege to meet someone that we really admire or look up to. Uh, again, maybe you, you rehearsed that whole thing. You had some time, like, okay, what am I going to say? Uh, we talked about this at our community group this past week, and We all kind of went around and shared some of these experiences. I had a really cool experience probably 10 years ago or so. I got to meet Ravi Zacharias. Uh, He's someone I really look up to. He's a Christian apologist. He's a writer and a speaker. Uh, He's got a crazy testimony, and uh, just the Lord has used him. He's been in some really uh, unique situations in the world, some very dangerous situations, and he's been able to, to preach the gospel and share and when I was a new Christian in college, I would listen to his talks online. I would listen to just hours and hours of his talks. And, and my friend who led me to the Lord in college, him and I both loved listening to Ravi Zacharias. And we got to go to a church in Minnesota where he was having a debate about the Bible and whether or not the Bible was true with some other uh, people who called themselves Christians who just didn't like believe the authority of the scriptures. And afterwards, he and his wife, Margie, were up front and we got to go up and got to shake his hand and take pictures with him, and I still have those pictures. And I was so nervous, but just, just going up and saying, like, you have made such an impact on my life, and thank you for your ministry. It was a really, it was a really neat experience to meet this intellectual giant, this guy who has just had this huge impact. But amazing, as amazing as that experience was, Ravi Zacharias is still human, right? He still struggles with the same things that you and I struggle with, He struggles with fear and doubt and anxiety, right? He probably struggles with people-pleasing. He probably puts out these talks that millions of, or, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are listening to, and he probably says, I wish I would have said that differently, or, you know, I didn't really, you know, this person asked me this difficult question, and I didn't really answer it the way I wanted to. Maybe he lays awake at night thinking about those things. So our human heroes, whoever they are, sports figures, athletes, entertainers, all these people struggle with the same things that you and I struggle with. And how we react when we meet them, I think it says a lot about our own hearts, right? It says a lot about our own anxieties, our own insecurities, our own allegiances, and maybe even our own idolatry. A couple weeks ago, we were introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. This giant of the faith, right? This hero In Genesis, this hero in the Bible, in the Christian faith, 
this larger-than-life figure. And we saw specifically in Genesis 12 how God promised to bless Abraham, how he promised to make him great, to make his name great, and to make him into a great nation. Many nations would come from him, so these promises of descendants and land and blessing and cursing, all these things that we're going to continue to see as we go throughout Scripture, these themes are going to be coming over and over so we looked at the first half of Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to skip a little bit here. We're, not, we're preaching through Genesis, but we're not covering every verse. We're not going to cover every little story. So just to kind of catch us up to speed with where we left off and the, these few portions in between chapter 12 and chapter 14 here. After that call of Abraham, and when he follows the Lord and, and trusts him and leaves, then there's a famine in the land. And Abraham and Sarah, again, In the text here, they're Abram and Sarai. God changes their names later. It's just easier to say Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, they they leave because of this famine. They go down into Egypt, and Abraham's afraid, right? He's saying, they're going to take my wife. They're going to kill me, and it's not going to end well. So I'm going to say she's my sister, and then everything will be okay, right? So she's my sister. Um, Abraham starts accumulating all these things, and things are going well. Uh, but then uh, God intervenes, and he says, um, sorry, Pharaoh, this is not the way it's going to go down, and plagues start coming on Pharaoh. Well, then Pharaoh's like, hey, what's going on? Abraham's like, yeah, she's my sister. Pharaoh gets mad. Get out of here. So they leave. Lot was with him. Abraham and Lot leave Egypt and go out with all kinds of stuff. They got possessions. They got people. They got all kinds of riches, and you know, it looks like God blessed them, even despite Abraham's fear and kind of trying to do things his own, his own way. They come out in chapter 13, and they have too much stuff to stay in one place. So remember, they decide, okay, who's going to go where? Lot says, I'm going to go to the Jordan Valley. That's where Sodom was. And we're told that the people in Sodom were wicked. Abraham goes to the land of Canaan where God told him he was going to go, and they separate. Well, then we get to chapter 14, and things start to get really interesting here. This is the first war that's recorded in the Bible. All these kings come together for this big battle. It's the king of Sodom and his allies come against the king, Kedileomar is his name, and his allies. So it's five against four, and the king of Sodom and his allies are defeated. Lot is living in that land, so Lot gets kidnapped. All his stuff, they all get taken away. And so then Abraham goes on a rescue mission at night with 318 people, okay, against this huge group of kings. We don't even know how many people, but I'm sure it was much more than 318, right? Abraham goes on this rescue mission by night, and they go and they recapture Lot. They recapture all the possessions, and then they come back to the, to the land where Abraham was. That sets the stage for our text here. So we're picking up in Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17. So let's go to God's word together. Genesis 14, 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Kedileomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this afternoon, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to your people, that you would show us that you are the victorious one, you are the great king. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. May we be led and guided by your word and by your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is a crazy scene here. Again, Abraham comes back from defeating these armies, defeating these kings by night. And the king of Sodom, whose possessions had been taken, whose people had been taken, he comes out and he meets Abraham. But before we're told more about their interaction, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this mystery man appears. And verses 18 through 20, I think, are kind of like this stick of dynamite that is hiding in this massive 50-chapter book of Genesis. We're, we're introduced to this person who, it just he comes out of nowhere. And I think this is probably one of the most misunderstood or passed over passages in all of Genesis that points us forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's mysterious here in its context. Here in Genesis 14, we don't really get much explanation of what's going on. But then it's going to be unpacked for us later in Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll get to that a little bit later. We've been talking in Genesis about how all of Scripture points us to Jesus. How we have to read the whole Bible as Christian Scripture. We can't just look at the Old Testament and say, well, that was just some story that had no significance, had nothing to do with the New Testament. We have to look at how do these things point us forward to Christ and his work, and then how does the New Testament refer back to these things and unpack them and explain them for us. And we're going to see that specifically with this story today. Well, I want you to imagine yourself being a young Jewish boy or girl in the time of the Old Testament. Imagine sitting on your grandpa's knee and he's reading to you from Genesis. He's reading to you about the story of Abraham. And remember, Abraham, he seems like he's the hero of the story, right? He's He's the granddaddy of them all, right? Father Abraham. But then grandpa gets to this part of the story about this Melchizedek character who comes out of nowhere. And you're like, wait a minute. Who is this guy? Like, where did he come from? I don't really, like, I haven't heard anything else about him. And you've, you've paid attention to your teachers. You've paid attention in school when you're being taught the Hebrew language, right? You know that Melchi comes from the word Melech, which is king. And you know that the word zedek is like the word sadiq, which means righteousness. So you kind of put two and two together. Oh, king of righteousness. Okay, that's pretty cool. Here's this guy. His name means king of righteousness. And then grandpa keeps reading. 
And that says that he's the king of Salem. Okay, Salem, shalom, peace. Okay, this guy's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. And then it also says that he's a priest of God Most High, El Elyon. And it's the first time so far in Genesis that you've heard this name, El Elyon, God Most High. Now you're really intrigued. There's a lot of cool things happening here in this story, right? A lot of new things that we haven't seen before. So Melchizedek comes out of nowhere, no introduction. It says that he brings bread and wine. And that's all it says. He just brought out bread and wine. But he brings out the bread and wine to celebrate the victory, to pronounce a blessing on Abraham. Could it be that this Melchizedek character is greater than Abraham? Let's look at the blessing in verse 19. He blessed Abram, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Remember Genesis 12, 3 that we looked at last time we were together? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we're seeing that contrast playing out here in these verses. The contrast between those who bless Abraham and those who dishonor him. We're going to see it in this stark contrast between Abraham's interaction with these two kings. The first king, Melchizedek. We've been talking about him. He blesses Abraham and he blesses God. Now you might hear this and be like, wait, he blesses God? Like, we can't bless God. Like, what, we can't give anything to God, right? How do we bless God? Well, it's the word, it's the same word for praise. When we bless God, we're saying praise be to God. Psalm 103, 1, one of my favorite psalms. It starts off, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. We've been singing it in our service, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We're blessing God. Now, we're not giving, God doesn't have a need to get something from us. He's not lacking anything. But when we say we're, we're praising the Lord, we're blessing the Lord, and that's what Melchizedek is doing here. So this is a, a pronouncement of praise and worship. Luther, Martin Luther, he called Melchizedek's blessing a sermon. I think what he's saying is Melchizedek, he's coming and he's preaching to Abraham here. He's preaching a sermon And he's telling him, Abraham, it's not by your might, it's not by your power that you came back victorious. It's the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. The victory belongs to the Lord. And then how does Abraham respond? I think we can argue that Abraham responds in worship, doesn't he? It says that he gives a tenth of everything to this king and this priest who is greater than him. I wonder how we respond when we're reminded that it's God who fights our battles for us. And it's God that's victorious. That everything that we have in this life is 100% by grace. Do we fall on our faces and bless the Lord? Do we praise him? Do we give sacrificially in response to what he has given to us? I'm not talking about a 10% tithe to the church. That's not even what this verse is talking about. And we can talk about that if you want to talk about it, but that's not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about acknowledging 
where the blessing comes from. It's talking about recognizing that it, it comes from the Lord and living lives of faith in response to the grace that God has shown us in Christ. So that's the first king. That's the first response that Abraham has, right? Blessing those, God says he will bless those who bless him. And him who dishonors him, I will dishonor. Now we come to the second king, right? The king of Sodom. The king of Sodom, who originally came out to meet Abraham, and then there's this interruption, right? I'm just picture it, like, he's coming out like, okay, here's my stuff. And then this guy just walks up out of nowhere, Melchizedek, like, he's probably like, hey, what's going on? Well, finally he gets his chance here, and he says, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So he's saying, hey, I just want my people, all the stuff, I don't care about the stuff, you take it, it can be yours. But Abraham sees right through it. Abraham says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. That literally means I have, I have you know, we raise our hand and we swear an oath, right? We lift our hand and we swear. That Abraham's saying, I swore an oath to the Lord. I have raised my hand to the Lord. Again, look at this language. To the Lord God most high, right? That's what Melchizedek just called the Lord. And we haven't, heard, we haven't seen this language yet in Genesis. And we don't know anything about Melchizedek. We don't know how he knows the Lord. Like we, there's, again, there's all this mystery. But Abraham is saying, hey, I'm with this guy, right? Like, we're worshiping the same God. King of Sodom, sorry. I'm not, we're not going to have it your way. I have lifted my hand. I'm not even going to take a sandal strap. I'm not even going to take a thread that belongs to you. He has sworn to the covenant God who appeared to him and who promised to bless him. And the reason why is he said, if I, if I do, then you're going to take credit. You're going to say, hey, it's because of me, and you're going to get the glory, and the glory is not going to go to the Lord. So in contrast, in contrast to Melchizedek, who blessed Abraham, the king of Sodom here actually dishonors Abraham by trying to make this deal with him and trying to, trying to come out looking like the good guy. Well, this is, this is a great story, right? It's a great story here in the Old Testament, but so what? I mean, what does this have to do with us here today, 4,000 years later? Like, we read about these people, there's these intriguing people. My kids do this in, in their homeschooling group. They do this timeline, this history timeline in classical conversations, and they sing this song that's probably like, it's like six minutes long, 13 minutes long. It's really long, like from the creation of the world until today. Um, and they go through, and, and you're, you know, you're singing songs about all these ancient people, you know, Julius Caesar and Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great, and it's just like, like, I can't even imagine what life was like, right? Like, I can't imagine what these ancient empires were like. It seems so distant, so far away. Well, then we get to, you know, people that have lived in the last hundred years, presidents and people that like we might know people who know people who know them or you know we can relate to them we've seen them on videos and it's like oh okay this makes sense like now I can kind of relate to these people well Melchizedek he's not just this ancient guy who has not this shadowy figure that has nothing to do with our lives today he does come out of nowhere he is mysterious But I think we can see, as Scripture kind of unpacks this, why he's important for us today and what the connection is. So he's mentioned here in chapter 14 of Genesis. 
And then it's going to be another thousand years until we hear about Melchizedek again. And it's going to be this just really quick reference in Psalm 110. David, writing Psalm 110, it's a royal psalm. So it's a psalm about a king, which is very interesting. And it starts off, the Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, Jesus quoted this psalm over and over in the New Testament. You've probably, if you've read the Gospels, you've seen this. And it's one of those verses that every time I'm always like scratching my head like, now what does this mean again? Because it's it's this like cryptic thing that Jesus is saying. Well, he quoted it to show the religious leaders that it was about him. He was the Lord who was sitting at the right hand of his father saying his enemies will be his footstool. So the son is the king who is seated at the right hand of the father. And then in verse 4 of Psalm 110, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then nothing throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. None of the prophets talk about Melchizedek. There's nothing, that nothing in the wisdom literature. We get this one verse in Psalm 110, and that's it. Outside of Genesis, okay? And there's a lot of interesting things going on here because Melchizedek comes on the scene and he's saying that he's a king and a priest. Well, in the Old Testament, those were two separate offices. The king could not be a priest and a priest could not be a king. There were strict laws separating those two offices. So we saw the glimpse of it with Melchizedek in chapter 14. Then David hints at it again in Psalm 110 that there's going to be this king and priest together. And then we have to wait a whole nother thousand years to figure out a little bit more about Melchizedek's name. Well, I asked you to imagine yourself being a young Jewish child sitting on, on your grandpa's knee. Now imagine yourself being a Jewish believer in the first century. You're a believer in Christ, and you're facing tremendous pressure from society You're facing tremendous pressure from your family to abandon your newfound faith and to go back to Judaism, to go back to trusting in the law, to go back to trusting in the sacrificial system. And that's the setting for the book of Hebrews. So you're in a church in the first century, and this letter is being read, and all of a sudden you hear this name Melchizedek being mentioned In chapter 5 of the letter, now again remember there were no chapters and verses back then, so probably almost halfway through the letter, probably has been being read for a while now. And Chapter 5, that verse, Psalm 110, verse 4 is quoted. The verse, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you sit up in your chair like, wait, what's going on here? This This is really important. And then... The person keeps reading and he's saying that Jesus went into the holy of holies and that he is our high priest and that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And before you can kind of put all the pieces together and recall all of your Old Testament history lessons from the synagogue and the significance of Melchizedek, all of a sudden they come to chapter 7 and they begin reading Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham he apportioned a tenth of everything. Okay, you're following along, you've heard that in Genesis. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. 
And then it gets to something interesting here. It says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, if you were here a couple months ago, we talked about the Nephilim in uh, Genesis chapter 6, right? Who are these creatures, these giants? Are they angels? You know, there's all this debate about who are the Nephilim, and we, I said, I don't know. <laughs> and this is another one of those things we look at this without father or mother, neither beginning of day. Is, is Melchizedek still alive? Is he, is he eternal? Is it, was he an angel? Was he Christ incarnate, pre-incarnate Christ? All these questions. You can go read all the commentaries and, and people will debate about all of it. Um, but it says here, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And I think this is talking about his priesthood and his ministry. I don't think Melchizedek is, is still alive roaming the earth uh, somewhere, just going around and blessing all these random people. But anyways, we're starting, things are starting to get, we're starting to get a little more clarity. We're starting to get a picture into what is going on here. So the whole point of the passage in Genesis 14 isn't about how great Abraham is. And it's not even about how great Melchizedek is, even though he appears to be greater than Abraham. The king of righteousness and the king of peace, this mysterious priest, he's pointing us to someone greater than himself. The king of righteousness and the king of peace. Why these two terms? What's going on here? Why is this important? Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that word justified means to be counted righteous, so it's righteousness, okay? Since we've been made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justified and made righteous, since that has happened, therefore we have peace with God because of the righteousness of Christ. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Genesis, speaking of these two concepts, righteousness and peace, he said, the trouble with so many people is that they want peace without righteousness. That is, they want their sin, but they do not want to be troubled by its consequences. They want to go their own way, assuming that everything will somehow turn out all right. But then they are dismayed and frustrated when it does not. God says we must have righteousness first because the root problem is sin and sin must be dealt with before peace can be experienced. And this is our human dilemma, isn't it? How is our sin going to be dealt with? How can we be at peace with God? Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, these are the two questions that you must ask yourself, that you must seek to find an answer to. How can my sin be dealt with, and how can I find peace with God? You know, I would argue that every religion, every worldview out there is trying to answer this question, right? Don't believe the lie, this secular myth that, well, we're just, we're past that, right? We're past those, we're past these moral struggles. We're past trying to figure out how to have things work out for us in life, yada, yada. Boyce nailed it here in that quote, didn't he? He said, people want their sin, but they don't want to be troubled by its consequences. 
They want to go their own way, assuming that everything will somehow turn out all right. But then they're dismayed and frustrated when it does not. I mean, show me someone in the world who's not frustrated when things don't go their way. And who isn't looking for some type of system to make things work for them, right? I mean, you can try to say, oh, I'm not religious and I just, I'm just, you know, secular. What? You're still wrestling with these things. All the people we're talking to at work, all the friends, all the neighbors, everybody's wrestling with this same thing. How can I have peace? I mean, they might not say I'm trying to have peace with God, but they want peace in their lives. And the reason they don't have peace is because they don't have peace with God, right? So everybody's trying to answer this question. The answer, again, what Boyce says, God says we must have righteousness first because the root problem is sin. And sin must be dealt with before peace can be experienced. How is that going to happen? Hebrews chapter 7, I mentioned a little earlier, getting into a lot of detail about who Jesus is as our high priest. We're not going to read all the rest of that chapter. Uh, I would encourage you to go and read it. There's some really fascinating things in there. But the rest of the chapter, the middle chunk of the chapter, is going to compare Melchizedek and his priesthood to the priesthood of the Levites. And it's going to show how the, the Levite priesthood in the Old Testament was insufficient. It was temporary and fading, and it was insufficient to take care of the problem of sin. Then Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 23 through 27, says this. The former priests, talking about the Levitical priests in the Old Testament, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Saying Jesus has taken care of it. He is the final high priest. He is the only sacrifice that we need. Christians, why would you want to go back to this way of living? Why would you want to go back to these daily sacrifices? Why would you want to go back to needing that priest to intercede for you all the time so that you could be right with God? The author to the Hebrews is telling us, don't do it. Don't go back to that way of living. Don't be enslaved to that system. Draw near to God through Jesus Christ, the great high priest who lives forever. The one who climbed up on that altar as the spotless lamb of God. He took off his kingly robe. He took off his priestly garments. And he became that sacrifice for us. He laid down his life once and for all so that we might be saved through him. So back to Abraham. The choice was before him. Salem or Sodom, right? God's way of peace or man's way of trying to get glory for himself. Abraham recognized that Melchizedek was the man sent from God, 
bringing bread and wine to celebrate the victory that God had won on his behalf. Melchizedek points us to the greater high priest, the one who also broke bread and poured out wine with his disciples, who said, I am going to win the victory. I'm going to be captured, right? I'm going to be killed, but I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to come back from the dead, and this is the victory that you all need, and we're going to celebrate with bread and wine. And so it is for us, right? We come to this table. We come to break the bread and pour out the wine and celebrate the victory that God has won for us at the cross. Raising his son from the dead. Living the perfect life, dying in our place, rising again so that we could have new life. That's what we celebrate when we come to this table. This table is not just for those who are a part of this church. This table is for anyone who has professed faith in Christ, who has trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. And we would ask that you be someone who is in good standing in a a gospel-preaching church. You don't have to be a part of this church, but we would ask that you would be a follower of Christ who is in good standing with a gospel-preaching church. And if that is true, then you can come forward. You can take the elements if you are not there yet, if you say, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm not walking with the Lord right now. I don't really, I'm not really sure where I'm at or I'm not a Christian. Um, that's, that's okay. We'd love to talk to you more about that. But we would ask you, if that's, if that's you, we'd ask you to remain in your seat and refrain from, from coming forward and taking the elements.